The day of Yom Kippur is a very important day on the Jewish calendar. Yom Kippur means day of atonement. But as Yom Kippur is practiced in Judaism today, I was just talking with a Jewish Christian friend of mine just last night. He reminded me of the reality that this is really the central holiday for Judaism today. It is often accompanied by a 25-hour fast, but I couldn't help but thinking that the celebration of the day of Yom Kippur today is missing some very key ingredients, namely a high priest, namely this very important ritual of the scapegoats and the sacrifice and the offering, the tabernacle, or even a temple, all of those central pieces are missing. Because it was in 70 AD that Titus Vespasian, a Roman general, came and destroyed the temple. And when he did so, he destroyed all the genealogical records with it and burned the temple to the ground. And so today, there is no priesthood. There is no sacrifice. There is no temple. Except it's all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was God's kind of way of putting his exclamation point on the reality that all of these pictures have terminated in the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we get to Jesus and see how he is fulfilled in this passage, we must go way back to that ancient desert and understand this ancient ritual and understand even how this chapter fits into the Bible. You see, those first five books of the Bible that are sometimes called the Pentateuch or the Torah, the centerpiece of those five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers in Deuteronomy is the book of Leviticus. It sits at the center, both structurally and thematically. And wouldn't you know, in the book of Leviticus, which is the centerpiece, the main course of the Torah, the centerpiece of Leviticus is the central chapter of Leviticus, both central structurally and thematically, Chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. And so, my dear friends, we are sitting here at the very heart and center of the Torah. The very heart and center, really, of the Scripture. It's almost as if we're like the open-heart surgeon looking at this pulsating heart right in front of us. And I must confess to you, I feel my tremendous inadequacy in presenting to you all the glories and riches of this chapter. So hopefully the Holy Spirit will overcome all of my inadequacies and you'll be able to see something of the glory and beauty of this passage. My aim this morning is quite simple because this central chapter teaches us How sinners can approach a holy God. And so I'm going to 
point out to you the five necessities, five things that are needed in a sinner approaching the holy God. The first is you need a humble priest. Verse 1. Now the Lord, that is Yahweh, spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. And so this is very important for us to keep in mind that chapter 16, while it is several chapters after chapter 10, it's still on the same day. The death of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons, Aaron still would have been mourning over them. His face still, no doubt, had tears streaming down it as his two sons were dead. But nonetheless, God gives these instructions on that mournful day. And this is important because God's plan and purpose would continue to move forward despite the reality that God's representatives had failed miserably. That while man had failed, God's purposes would not fail. He would still provide a way back to him. Verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. God gives this instruction here that this special day, this, as we know it, the day of atonement, or more accurately, the day of atonements, it's actually plural in the Hebrew, that this would be the only time, one day of the year, one man was only allowed to enter into this innermost part of the tabernacle and later on the temple when that would be built. I'm not sure if we were able to get get the picture of the tabernacle up there. There we go. I don't know if you could see that. But you could see on the leftmost part of that box is the ark. And there was a progression into the tabernacle from right to left as you're looking at it. The outer part being where the the altar and then the basin, as you move forward deeper into the tabernacle, there was the holy place, and then there was that most holy place. That's the place that the Lord is instructing Moses before the ark of God, upon which that mercy seat stood or sat, that place that was separated from the holy place with a veil that place was only allowed to be entered into once a year. That the priests, Aaron's sons, were not allowed in there at any other point. Only on that one day. Verse 3. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this. Now, let me just clarify this. It was only the priest who could enter there. 
He was a representative. A priest was a representative, was a mediator between God and man. He was a mediator on behalf of God's covenant people. Just like Adam was in the Garden of Eden, a representative on behalf of humanity, so Aaron was a representative on behalf of the covenant people. And so now these specific instructions on the uniform of the priest. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body. And he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now, if you're an observant student of Scripture... And you remember several weeks ago in Levit- when we were in Leviticus chapter 8, there was the uniform of the high priest, the sons of Aaron. The uniform, the typical uniform of the high priest was very elaborate. It was very regal. It was filled with colors. In fact, I think we have a picture of what it might have looked like. The two pictures, on the, the, the two individuals on the right, there has been the, the royal uh, blues and purples. I don't know, I'm colorblind. But um, the, the, the purples and the golds. But that's not what the high priest was to enter into the Holy of Holies with on this day. It was more like the one on the left, except it would have been a linen sash, all whites rather than the blues and the purples. And in fact, if you listen to Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 9, it says he placed on his head uh, the turban on his head, and on the turban on its front he placed the gold plate, the holy crown, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So there was, there was to be a, a kind of a crown, a golden crown on the high priest's head, but that's not what he was to come in On this day, it was to be a linen turban. It was basically just to be a towel over his head. Exodus 28, verses 5 through 10 says, They shall take the gold and the blue and the purple and the scarlet material and the fine linen. They shall also take the ephod of gold, of blue, of purple, of scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a skillful workman. It shall have two shoulder pieces jointed and its end that they may be joined. The skillfully woven hand which is on it shall be like the workmanship of the same material of gold, of blue, of purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel six of the names on the one stone and the names remaining uh, of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth so that was the 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 typical uniform of the priest serious bling bling blue purple scarlet gold precious gems but again that is not the uniform on this day. The uniform over and over, linen. Linen, linen sash, linen robe, 
linen turban, linen undergarments, linen. Only whites. We say, what's the significance of that? Well, it would appear that this is suggesting something of the humility and the abasement which the priest must approach holy God on this day of atonement. That he, in a very real sense, takes off the royal garments and puts on the plain whites. When the priest was representing God on behalf of the people, he wore those regal, that regal uniform with the blues and the purples and the scarlets and the gold. But now, as he approaches God on that one day out of the year on behalf of the people, he comes abasing himself. Does this not this ancient symbol with tremendous theological significance is also, I think, a kind of a prophetic type, is it not? A type that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ who according to Philippians chapter 2, he existed in the very form, the regal of deity. But yet he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. But he humbled himself and he took on the lowly garments of humanity being found in a human appearance. He took the form, the morphe of a slave. And he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The great high priest of the new covenant was a humble priest. In fact, on the day of atonement, the day of atonement that we celebrate as New Testament Christians, Good Friday, we remember the reality that Jesus was not decked out in a gold crown turban but he had a crown of thorns on his head. He did not have the robes of regality, but he had a humble robe which the Roman soldiers would cast lots for. He did not have a scepter of precious metal, but he had a reed which the Romans used to mock him. And yet he did all that to be your representative before a holy God. So that on his great day of atonement, satisfaction would be made. The Victorian Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said he came out of his simple body, yes, in his naked body, for they stripped off even the common robe from him. They made him hang before God's Son and God's universe, naked to his shame and to the disgrace of those who chose to do so cruel and dastardly a deed. 
Oh, my soul, adore your Jesus when he made atonement, humbled himself, and wrapped around him a garb of your inferior clay. Spurgeon takes it one step further and says, Jesus' humble garment was a garment of flesh and blood, hanging in his nakedness before that Jewish audience, taking upon himself the shame and guilt that was not his own, but was ours. What a Savior we have in Jesus, a humble priest. But secondly, you need not only a humble priest, you need a holy priest. Notice verse 6. And by the way, verses 6 through 10 is really a, a kind of summary of the events of this great day. And then verses 10 through 28 uh, really expands upon the ritual of that day. And this is a common theme that you see in Scripture. Moses commonly writes this way where he'll give a kind of summary statement, then he'll expand upon it. Um, he even does that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Do you ever hear people sometimes jab at the Scripture? They'll talk about two creation accounts. Well, it's not two creation accounts. It's Moses expanding on day 6 in chapter 2 of Genesis, okay? They just need to read their Bibles a little bit more carefully. But here's this summary statement in verse 6 through 10. He says, Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. And then a summary of the goats is given in verses 7 through 10. And then he expands upon this sacrifice that Aaron is to offer for himself, and all the priests, all the high priests who would follow in Aaron's footsteps must offer for themselves on the Day of Atonement. Verses 11 down to verse 13, it says, Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. Notice the for himself repeated over and over. You see, the reality here, again, as Aaron's sons had just been taken out on stretchers, is that Aaron approaches God as a sinner. Remember, it was Aaron himself in, in Exodus chapter 32 who, you know, the Israelites were like, we need some visible representation of Yahweh. We need, let's, let's make a golden calf. And, and Aaron says, great idea. No, it wasn't a great idea, right? Aaron was a very flawed leader. Aaron himself was a sinner. Ever since that first representative in the Garden of Eden, all the representatives of humanity have been duds. And the same was true of the high priests in ancient Israel. They themselves needed atonement. They themselves were tainted by sin. And this is even illustrated with what is said in verse 12. 
he shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. What is this saying here? Well, when Aaron went in behind the veil into that holy of holies, one of the first things he had to do was put the incense over the fire so that there was a smoke that hid the glory of the Lord from Aaron. And the reason is explicitly stated at the end of verse 13, so that he won't die. And this is something we see throughout the Scriptures. Even Moses himself, who nobody had a closer relationship with Yahweh, God of Israel, than Moses himself. But even, remember, Moses had to hide himself in the cleft of the rock when God's glory passed by. Exodus 30, verse 20 The Lord says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see see me and live. Why is that? Because man is sinful and God is holy and man will be incinerated by the blinding, incinerating holiness of God. And so when Aaron went in that holy of holies on that one day out of the year, he went and there had to be a cloud that veiled the glory of God from the face of Aaron, lest he die. Roy Gain says, this cloud was to be a shield from God's lethally glorious presence by covering the mercy seat, the golden slab covering the top surface of the Ark of the Covenant. You see, man is sinful. This is carrying on the drama that was initiated in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. That it's dangerous to try to go back to Eden as we see the tabernacle as a kind of Eden 2.0. That now man comes back as a sinner. He was driven out of the tabernacle. And for man now to come back into the very presence of God, he must come in holiness. And so these sacrifices had to be offered on Aaron's behalf, both the sin offering, the purification offering, but also the burnt offering. All these, this signifying atonement had to be made for the high priests of Israel. But this is by way of contrast with the great high priest of the new covenant. You see, the great high priest of the new covenant could say on one occasion in John chapter 8, 
which of you accuses me of sin? I mean, could, would you ever stand in front of a group of people and make that, that statement? Anybody want to accuse me of sin? No, just kidding. I mean, just that's my family, right? But you could have interviewed Jesus' earthly brothers. You could have interviewed Mary. You could have interviewed Joseph. And there was no blemish of sin. There was no taint of sin. Jesus never had a day where he was in a bad mood, grumbling, complaining. He never had one of those times where he was testy. He never rebelled against his parents' authority. He never just fudged on the truth just a little. He was never lazy. He was without sin. And he set himself apart as the high priest and representative of sinners, of God's new covenant people. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Friends, the high priest of the new covenant, the Lord Jesus himself, was and is a holy high priest. And this is necessary because if Jesus experienced the taint of sin, then it would be rerun all over. Rerun of Adam. Rerun of Aaron. Rerun of Nadab and Abihu. Rerun of every representative of God's people as a utter failure before holy God. But not this Jesus. When he encountered his hour of temptation, as he got a glimpse of the horror of the cross that he was going to endure the next day. He was in that garden, not the garden of Eden, but the garden of Gethsemane. And he was tempted to turn back. But he cried out, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And he obeyed the Father. And he drank that cup of the Father's wrath, every last drop of it, as a perfect, holy, obedient high priest. He obeyed. Friend, do you trust this high priest to get you to heaven? Oh, my friend. Don't look at your own record. That's a fool's errand. Don't look at your own merit. Don't look at your own goodness. Look at the goodness, the holiness of Jesus and his record. You need him as your representative. 
You need him as your advocate. You need him to be able to stand before the Father and say, I represent him. Take my record in his place. Friends, this is the hope of every son and daughter of Adam, which you and I are, looking out on a group of human beings. We're all born with Adam as our representative. But in Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made righteous. All have a spotless record because of His holiness. I know what representative I'm choosing. I hope you'll choose Jesus as your representative. Well, you need a humble priest. You need a holy priest. You need a hell-appeasing sacrifice. Notice verse 7 through 9 and 15 to 19. 7 through 9 is the summary statement about this offering. It says, He shall take two goats from the pres- uh, and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. So the casting of lots, this was an ancient ceremony that was a decision from the Lord. It, was, it would have been similar to a kind of rolling of the die in our context today without the monetary involvement and things like that. There was the, the, the casting of the lot. In notice in verse 8, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. So the lot was to decide between these two goats. One lot was going to be offered on the mercy seat before the Lord, and the other was going to be, as we're going to see, set free, cast free. Verse 9 says, Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell, making it a sin offering. So this is a sin offering. And and if you think back to the sin offerings of of Leviticus chapter 4, these were the purifying offerings. These offerings had an atoning effect, but also the blood was used in a unique way to purify not only the people, but the stuff in the tabernacle. And then drop your eyes down to verse 15 to 19 as this is elaborated upon more. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering which is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place. So he's making atonement not only on behalf of the people, but also on behalf of the place. The place has been tainted by the presence of human sinfulness because of the impurities of the sons of Israel. And again, keep in in mind, chapters 11 through 15 are what precede chapter 16. Chapters 11 through 15, we covered in a jet tour kind of way. All those impurity laws, which were highlighting man's, the the consequences of man's rebellion. Verse 16, And because of their transgression, 
in regard to all their sins. So there's three words here that are used. Impurities, transgressions, and sins. Transgression is is a very uh, graphic word. They're rebellions. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of, of their impurity. So this is to purify the tent of meeting. When he goes in it to make atonement, In the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. He shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides with his finger he shall sprinkle the blood of it seven times and cleanse it and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrate it and so what we see in this the lot is cast there's two goats here there's a lot cast one goat is going to be sacrificed to the Lord the other goat is going to, as we're going to see in a minute here, be sent away. I want us to focus in on that one goat that's sacrificed to the Lord because what I believe God is giving us in the picture of the goats is two different angles of atonement and sacrifice. One angle that is Godward and one angle that is more horizontal. In other words, to use two theological words here, you have one word, one goat is a picture of propitiation, appeasing God's wrath and justice, and the other, expiation, carrying sin away from us. Both of these pictures are encapsulated with the two goats. The first picture is propitiation. Propitiation is a word that we see come up in the New Testament. We see it uh, in Hebrews chapter 2 where Jesus is the great high priest who makes propitiation for our sins. It's in Romans chapter 3 where Jesus is displayed publicly as a propitiation. It's used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation for our sins. So this word propitiation, it comes up throughout the scriptures. And, it, and again, it highlights God the Father's wrath being appeased and satisfied through blood sacrifice. And this is what we see taking place with the sacrifice of this goat and the blood that's sprinkled on the altar, which is the mercy seat. So that as one commentator says, because you remember the mercy seat, it had the two cherubim facing one another. And, and this was common in the ancient world. If you look at um, ancient throne rooms through archaeological digs, you'll see often kings would have cherubim facing them. 
And so the, the mercy seat represented the very presence of God over his people with the covenant below them. And, and one commentator says, figuratively speaking, Yahweh looks down on the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, through the blood dabbed on the atonement slate, leading him to govern his people through mercy and forgiveness. It's this marvelous picture as God looks at his people through the blood that is dabbed on the mercy seat. Friends, this is huge. Because in this ancient symbol is a picture of how God relates to his people. He relates to his people through his wrath and justice being appeased through blood sacrifice. And wow, it comes in this ancient picture. We find its ultimate fulfillment, of course, in the Lord Jesus himself. There's a reason why on that evening before Jesus' execution, when he anticipated his execution, he refers to it as the cup. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Because the cup all throughout the scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a symbol of the pouring out of God's just wrath and judgment. We even see in the book of Revelation where it talks about the bowls of God's wrath pouring it out upon humanity. But you see, it's the propitiation, the picture of the one goat that's offered to the Lord that in that we have Jesus absorbing the Father's just indignation, all the fury of an eternity under the just punishment of God in hell forever is absorbed upon Jesus. This is one of the reasons, if if you listen to the cries of Golgotha, you'll hear Jesus say things like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he's suspended between heaven and earth, he's crying out this cry of abandonment, this cry that the Father is forsaking him. Why? Because he's being treated as a sinner, being punished as a sinner on the cross, not for his own sins, but for our sins as his covenant people. Friend, this is the propitiation This is the sacrifice. And of course, this ancient sacrifice before the Lord had to be performed every year. Every year, just like we have our own holiday seasons, they had their holy day seasons. And this was a reminder that I still sinned this past year. I still need more atonement. And there was a, a measure of inadequacy in the reality of the, rep- of the repetition of the sacrifice. And this is why the author of Hebrews picks up upon this and says things like in Hebrews chapter 10, but by a single sacrifice. He has perfected 
for all time those who are being sanctified. For by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Or things like the author of Hebrews would say, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father, signifying job's done. It's complete. Justice has been satisfied. Friend, how do you deal with your guilt? Do you punish yourself? Do you blame others? Do you try to run from God? All of those are foolish ways to deal with guilt. We see them, they're as old as Adam and Eve, right? It was the woman you gave me, blaming his sin on the woman. The woman, the serpent, the devil made me do it. They try to cover their own nakedness through a kind of self-atonement, covering themselves with fig leaves. They try to run from God. All of it foolish. God would have to make that sacrifice. God would have to clothe them. In a similar way, my friend, Jesus himself is that once for all sacrifice. He has made propitiation. You can be accepted before God. You can approach holy God, not on the basis of yourself, but this representative who pays this hell-deserving sacrifice on your behalf. Friend, if you've not yet trusted yourself to Jesus, do so. And friends, those of us who have entrusted ourselves to Jesus, keep going back to him. Don't try to deny your guilt. Don't try to blame it on others. Own up to it. But take it to the cross. Take it to Christ. Well, we have not only, not only do you need a, ho- a humble priest, a holy priest, a hell-appeasing sacrifice, you need a hopeful promise. This is what we see, this picture of this other goat. Verse 10, and the man from outside the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who... Whoops, I'm in chapter 17. It's the wrong chapter. 16.10, but the goat... I was wondering that. Didn't seem like. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before Yahweh to make atonement upon it and send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Verses 20 through 28 of chapter 16. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. When they... When then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat. Now, now, what's very important here, everything that happened back behind the curtain, nobody saw, right? And no doubt there was a kind of drama. If you are amongst the Israelites outside on that day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, one day out of the year, you would have kind of been holding your breath, you know? Again, bodies were dropping earlier in the day, Right? God was killing people, and, and you're hoping that Aaron comes out. And all, every day of atonement after that, you, you're kind of holding your breath, right? 
It's dangerous. How many times did he say, lest he die, lest he die? Throughout this section, it's repeated. And so you don't see anything that goes on behind the veil. You don't see any of it. But when the priest came out with the live goat, that everybody laid eyes on. Everybody saw it. And I can't help but think this was part of God's plan so that his people, he was giving them a picture of the assurance of expiation, the assurance of forgiveness. He gave them a very tangible picture of, I'm sending your sins away. So what does he do? Verse 21, in front of all the congregation of Israel, Aaron lays both his hands on the head of the live goat. Now, all the other ceremonies with laying on of hands, it was one hand. But, but evidently, there's so many sins, it, it takes both hands. He's laying his hands, on both hands, on the head of the live goat. And he confesses over it, all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins, he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. So imagine that. I wonder how long it took. I wonder if maybe each each tribe and each family and each clan submitted a list of sins to the priest. And this priest is there reading from this list, sin after sin, crime after crime, as he confesses over this goat. And then there's a man who stands in readiness, and his job is to escort this goat out into the desert. Verse 23 or verse 22, the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes, come forth and offer his burnt offering and burnt offering for of the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall offer up and smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as a scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, he shall be taken outside the camp. They shall burn the hides, their flesh, the refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his, bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. And so what we see here with this ritual is that even the man who escorts the goat all the way out into the desert. Even he, when he comes back, he has to go through the special bathing. And, and, and as one, one commentator, one student of Leviticus says, it's, it's almost like this is the garbage truck going to the landfill. Verse 24. 
taking all the sins of Israel with him. And the fascinating thing here is there is a movement in this ritual that goes, if we could just throw that picture of the tabernacle back up, there is a movement in this ritual that starts at the innermost section of the ark. And in verse 14, moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, also in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And so he's supposed to sprinkle blood in an eastward motion, and then he moves out from that all, from that innermost mercy seat out in an eastward direction. And then he appears before the people right outside the tabernacle. And then the hands are laid upon that live goat, and that live goat is sent further eastward into the wilderness. We say, what? you know, I mean, Matt, isn't that why we have Google Maps? You know, you tell me I need to know what's east and what's west. Well, if you want to understand the Bible, you need to know what's east and what's west because it was Adam and Eve who were driven out east of Eden. And so in a very similar way, this is God's way of purging the holy place, the curtain, the veil, the tabernacle, and all the people moving their sins as far as the east is from the west. And I can't help but think the author of Psalm 103 had that in mind when he says, I will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. God purging his holy place of sin. And this, my friends, is a picture that is supposed to give you comfort and assurance. This was an ancient picture for Israel. Now, now the, 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 the goats didn't actually take away sin. They were pictures that pointed to the Lord Jesus and his perfect sacrifice. But there was a promise there. They had to believe in the promise, and it was the promise that pointed forward to Christ. And because the promise was true, and God gave this promise in pictures for the comfort, for the hope, for the assurance of the believer that they could know that they are forgiven of their sins. Friends, God wants you to have assurance. He wants you to have comfort and hope. He wants you to be able to die with a smile on your face. I don't know how Jimmy went to heaven this past week. I don't know if it was with a smile on his face. But I know he had reason to. Because his hope and his confidence in the forgiveness of sins was terminating upon the Lord Jesus and his saving work. Friend, do you want to die well? You want to die with hope? You can. You want to be able to live this chaotic life with hope and confidence and joy? You can. Lay hold of the promise. Your sins have been sent away. And not only we, we have also here, I think, a, a kind of an eschatological promise as well. Because one day God promises in the new heaven, new earth, which is a kind of a picture of a temple in Revelation 21 and 22. It says, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
Well, if that's going to happen, what's going to have to leave planet Earth? The curse of sin. And so we sing with Isaac Watts, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth prepare him room, for he will make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. God will one day purge this world of the stain of sin and all the uncleanness so that God will be with His people and we can dwell in the holy presence of God with assurance that we will not die because of the cleansing blood of Jesus. Well, you need to respond or you need to a, a, a humble priest, a holy priest, a hell-deserving sacrifice, a hopeful promise, and now, fifth, lastly, you also need a humble response. This is, this is where it ends. Verse 29, this shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. Literally in the Hebrew, a Sabbath of Sabbaths for you. That you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, to make atonement for for the holy sanctuary and shall uh, make atonement for the tent of meeting. This is a great summary statement of all that's going on on this day. To make atonement for the holy sanctuary, to make atonement for the tent of meeting, for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel and for all their sins once every year, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. And so Moses writes into the book that this is a perpetual statute. This is to be observed over and over once a year. And it is to be observed with a solemn preparation of the people of God to humble their souls. This phrase, humble humble your souls, is a phrase that's often accompanied with fasting. It certainly means a kind of self-denial and self-abasement before the Lord. This is the way in which sinners are to approach this holy God as they lay hold of the holy sacrifice, the holy priest, the hell-deserving sacrifice, the hopeful promise. As they approach this God, they come self-abased with humility, recognizing that all that happens to that sacrifice should be happening to them. And if they were not in the promise, they would be objects of God's eternal and unchanging wrath. But in the promise, they have forgiveness. Friend, have you responded to this great day of atonement on this side of the cross? Have you responded to Good Friday 
the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ with a humble heart that abases yourself and looks outside of yourself to Christ and His promise? I hope so. But this is not only the first step of faith in the Christian life, one of self-abasement and humility, laying hold of the promise of God that's found in Christ. It's every step along the way. It's to be the pattern of our lives. Walking in humble dependence upon the gospel. You see, friend, every day, I don't care if you've been a Christian for 20 years or two hours, you need Jesus in his death and resurrection. We sang it earlier, Lord, I need you. Not just to get you through the day, not just to, you know, help you deal with your nasty coworkers, not not just to help you parent your children or deal with your friends. You need Jesus to be able to be accepted before a holy God. I hope you believe that, my friend. That's your only hope. Because all this could be done, but if you don't respond by humbling your soul before Him, the promise is not for you. And so look outside of yourself and look to Him. We have here in this Day of Atonement a kind of a picture, a picture that points us to Jesus. I think of Zacchaeus, that wee little man who was so short, he wasn't hardly able to catch a glimpse of Jesus. He had to climb up a tree to be able to see Jesus. When we get to the New Testament, in a very real sense, we climb that tree and we see all of this, all this ancient picture and all of its blood and guts and all of that and all of its seemingly strangeness. When we climb the tree, we see 